Good morning and welcome from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. We welcome all who are with us here this day, right in front of us in our gymnasium, and all who join us on KFUO, 8.50 a.m. and worldwide, kfuo.org. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, and we'll be continuing our series looking at the lessons for the coming week, the scripture lessons that most of us will hear in church next Sunday. And with that, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you so very thankful for all your good gifts and blessings to us, and especially for the forgiveness and everlasting life we have through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Today, as we look ahead to the great banquet, the great marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom to come, we pray your Holy Spirit will be with us, will guide us into the truth that you would have us learn about that. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our only Savior. Amen. All right, I hinted in the prayer, we're going to be looking at an Old Testament lesson and a gospel lesson that are matched very well together. And they both point to the great marriage sheath of the Lamb and his kingdom still to come. That great uh, image of heaven, or the church triumphant, we might say. And again, we will see that in both in Isaiah, in the Old Testament lesson, and in the Gospel lesson as well. Before we look at those, I'd like to have you turn with me, though, to Revelation chapter 19. And there's two spots here in Revelation where you might say the fulfillment of this, or the culmination of this, uh, really takes place. And then we'll take a look back and see how all these point toward that final culmination. So we're going to look first at Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb. Now, who would be the Lamb? Jesus, of course. The marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride. Now, who is the bride? The church, right, the Christian church, all believers. It's kind of a mixed metaphor there. We don't normally think of a lamb and a, you know, and a bride together, but that's simply the, the imagery that is done here. Uh, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, so here in Revelation is one spot where we see that Eternity with our God is pictured here as a great wedding banquet. And when you stop and think about it, that's a, a wonderful imagery, isn't it? When we think about the different events that we have on the face of this earth, it's no doubt that God has chosen throughout Scripture to utilize that image, the image of a marriage feast, or we might today refer to it as a, a marriage reception that takes place. It's obviously a time of great joy, a time of great celebration. 
Uh, usually when we are there, it's nothing but happiness. We kind of you know, forget about all of the other cares and concerns we may have and just have a great time together with our friends and our relatives. And so that's why it's, it's a, certainly a very appropriate image for eternity, where there will be no other uh, cares, concerns, worries, anxieties, and where we will be together with family, friends, relatives, and all who are of the people of Christ. Just flip, uh, while we're here in Revelation, just flip a couple more chapters to Revelation 21. And we'll look at verses 1 through 5, and then we'll get back to the actual lessons for next week. But I just want to show you while we're this close, there's yet another spot here. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more." Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And we're going to pick up some of that same language in our Old Testament lesson from Isaiah. So again, I just wanted to show you, this is what we might call the fulfillment or the culmination of everything we're going to read uh, certainly in Isaiah and in the Gospel lesson. But it's a beautiful image for the eternal banquet that we all have with one another and especially in the presence of our God. Now let's take a look on the sheets that I passed out. And first of all, the collect for next week or that prayer again that comes uh, right before the scripture readings and kind of gathers the thoughts for the day. The collect for next Sunday says... Almighty God, you invite us to trust in you for our salvation. Deal with us not in the severity of your judgment, but by the greatness of your mercy. And we're going to see in the gospel lesson both severity of judgment and mercy or grace given God's people. So it really kind of sets us up a little bit more for the gospel lesson. Uh, than it does uh, for the Old Testament lesson. But let's dive into the Old Testament lesson. You've got it printed there on the sheet, Isaiah 25, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 9. Isaiah, of course, uh, being uh, what is sometimes called the fifth gospel book. There is so much gospel in Isaiah. There is no other book in the Old Testament quoted more in the New Testament and Christ runs through Isaiah just like a, a thread running right through the entire garment. Uh, 66, book, uh, 66 chapters, just like the Bible has 66 books. It is really an amazing book. And uh, written by Isaiah approximately 700 years before Christ. Now, as happens many times in Isaiah, you, it's almost like a roller coaster. You, you just had Isaiah, God through Isaiah, pronouncing judgment on his own people. 
And now we get this beautiful picture of promise and of great celebration. Let's read through this first, and then we'll go back and kind of take it apart. Starting at verse 6 of Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. All right, let's go back and kind of break this up now, take this apart. Uh, Isaiah starts off on this mountain. Well, what mountain might that be? Mount Zion, which is uh, used throughout the scriptures to uh, sort of be an image for Jerusalem and actually for the church itself. But here we're speaking about that great banquet that is to come. The Lord of hosts will make for, and notice here, is it just for the people of Israel? All peoples. You know, it's interesting. When you read through this lesson, notice that we've got all peoples right here. Notice in verse, um, in verse 7, we have... Uh, that is moving the covering that is cast over all peoples and the veil that is over all nations. In verse 8, he will take away from all the earth the reproach of his people. So throughout this uh, promise, we see that this is not a limited thing. This is over all peoples, all nations. There's a sort of a universal uh, prophecy here that, that God gives through Isaiah. Now, What's all this uh, imagery about rich food and, and all of this wine, uh, not just any wine, but well-aged wine? Uh, you get the impression here that uh, this is not simply uh, going to 7-Eleven and picking up uh, a, few, a few things in the snack aisle and, and putting them out, right? This is, nothing against 7-Eleven, by the way, I'm sure it's a fine, fine establishment, but um, this is... Uh, meant to communicate it is the very best of the very best. It is a way of, of looking at heaven as the very best. In other words, God is sparing nothing here. This would be a banquet that if you were invited to, you couldn't wait to get there, right? You'd be thinking about it for weeks to come. And there's no way that, that you, you, if you had anything else, you would clear your calendar for this banquet, right? And notice there, it's a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. In the Hebrew, it means it has the, the wine that still has the sediment in it in the bottom that makes it taste even better. There, it's not been filtered out yet. Uh, it's a rich food full of marrow, so the, the uh, meat right next to the bone that is the tastiest and the most tender. Is everybody eating breakfast? I hope I'm not getting you too hungry here by going through this. <laughs> and, uh, 
And notice there, the well-aged wine, well-refined, okay? So again, the idea is, uh, meant to communicate these images are, that it is uh, the best of the best, and, and just uh, something we would delight in. Now, verse 7, we get a little bit different imagery here. He, now who's the he? That would be God or Yahweh will swallow up on this mountain. Well, he's going to be doing some eating here, but not, not of that. It's referring here to he's going to swallow up the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. Notice again, all peoples, all nations. And we think that veil is simply uh, sin and death that just hangs over all people. It will be swallowed up on that last day. God will consume it, okay? It will be no more. You know, we cannot imagine, can we, uh, an existence without death anymore. Death is just so much a part of our life, and how tragically we were reminded of that again this last week uh, in the events that took place in Las Vegas. And death is still the, the final enemy uh, that, that will finally be vanquished and put away. Christ already has, of course, on the cross, destroyed the power of death to condemn us and the law to condemn us. And ultimately then, on that last day, death itself, along with sin, and of course death is the penalty for sin, all of it is swallowed up and done away with. But we can't possibly, you know, at this point, because we, our lives are so filled with death and things leading up to death, it's hard for us to imagine, you know, what that existence is going to be. But finally, no more, uh, as we read in Revelation, no more weeping or uh, mourning or crying or pain. Uh, death is done away with. Every tear is wiped from our eyes. Uh, something we can't even imagine uh, what that's going to feel like at this point. Okay? And notice there, he will swallow up death forever. We, it's a, again, we hear the echo of what we read in Revelation, swallowed up completely. And notice there, uh, the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. Again, not just for his own people, but from all faces. No more tears any longer. Okay? And the reproach of his people, the accusation and the penalty for sin, uh, he will take away from, notice, all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. You know, it's interesting. We get this uh, sense here. The Lord simply needs to speak, and it is going to be done, right? Just as certainly as in the beginning, he simply speaks his word, let there be light, and there is light, and, and so on throughout creation. His word, unlike our words, actually carry with them the power and ability to do exactly what he says. There is no doubting what's going to happen after he says it. Uh, and that's, of course, why he says the Lord has spoken. That's it. It's going to be that way. Okay? Now, verse 9 is kind of interesting. It will be said on that day. Notice uh, here God is telling us exactly what we are going to be saying on that day. And we will be saying this because God is saying that we're going to be saying this. <laughs> it's even, we're getting a preview of what this is going to be like. But notice there, uh, we have waited for him that he might save us. Now, in Hebrew, there are two words for the word wait. 
There's a word for wait on someone or something if you don't know what's going to come. In other words, I might say, I'm going to wait and see what happens here, right? This is not that word. This is the other word. It's kava, which means to wait knowing what's going to happen, okay? And there's a big difference there. So God's people are saying we have waited for him or God in order that or that he might save us. How did we know what was going to happen? He tells us in his word, right? So we are waiting, uh, knowing what is coming. Then the next one, this is the Lord. We have waited for him. Same word. We have waited for the Lord, knowing what's going to happen. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now I wanted to just take a minute here and stop and kind of pull back and think about this. Um, you, when you think about this, God's people have been, uh, by the time of Isaiah, they have been waiting on the Lord, have they not? All the way back to Genesis 3.15, where God says he is going to send one to crush the head of Satan. And here we are in Isaiah's day, and we're still waiting. And how long is it going to take after Isaiah's day for that one to come? About 700 more years. And now... God, you know, when the fullness of time, God sent forth his sons born under a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. So it's all in God's time. And we simply have his words and promises, and we wait on the Lord, knowing what's going to happen. Not, we'll wait and see if it's going to happen, but knowing what's going to happen. And when you think about it, we have been waiting after Christ now for a couple thousand years, haven't we? And we're waiting, knowing what's going to happen. Why? Because we have his word and promise about what's going to happen, right? Is there a personal application for us here in our own, in our own lives? Are there times that we wait on the Lord? Sure. In our, own, in our own individual personal lives, there are times where we are waiting on the Lord, aren't we? And it, it can be, uh, at times, a little uh, frustrating, perhaps, right? We want, uh, you know, I, was, I've, I don't know if you've heard this, but think of how impatient we have become as Americans, that, that now we stand before a microwave, you know, and say, come on, come on, come on. You know, when it, <laughs> it used to take hours to prepare this stuff, right? And uh, we want it now. The idea of waiting on the Lord and waiting with a confidence and a peace that knows that he has promised and in his good time it will come about exactly as he has said. And so there is a... Uh, something I think for us in a, in a personal sense here as well. God's people in the Old Testament were waiting on him. God's people in the New Testament were waiting on him. The, the promise came in Christ exactly as he said it would. So many prophecies in Isaiah pointed ahead and are fulfilled in Christ. And we today are on the, you might say, on the other side of that fulfillment, 
waiting for the ultimate final consummation of all things when Christ returns. And so we are waiting on the Lord in that sense yet today. Okay, Lisa, Jeb. Oh, yeah. Okay, the question was uh, talking about in Revelation, and here, wiping away tears from all faces. I think kind of understood here is, is the faces of those in that, in that place. In other words, all the faces of the people there in that banquet or in that great feast. Yeah. Unfortunately, and we're going to see in the gospel lesson, uh, there's not going to be any relief uh, for those who are not in this banquet. Okay. So it, the all faces, I think we understand, refers to those that are here in the banquet. Jan? Yes. Yes, the question was on Mount Zion, and that's, that's all believers. That's a, sort of a metaphor, again, for his church. So that... And that's used uh, for the church triumphant as well. The new Jerusalem that we read in Revelation coming down out of heaven. Okay? All right, so this will be the Old Testament lesson for next week. And uh, it is, again, usually the case that the Old Testament lesson and the gospel lesson line up when it comes to themes. Okay? So I'm going to take these a little out of order. Let's go to the gospel lesson now. Matthew chapter 22, 1 through 14. And this comes at a time of great and rising opposition to Jesus. Uh, this is getting near the end now for his uh, three-year earthly ministry. And we have opposition before this. Um, the chief priests and the elders came to him in chapter 21. And they said, uh, by what authority do you do these things? And remember, this was the gospel lesson a couple weeks ago. Remember how Jesus responded? I have a question for you. You give me the answer to the question, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from man? And remember, they were stymied because they, they figured, the chief priests and the elders, they figured if we say from God, then he's going to say, then why didn't you believe him? And if we say from man, we're afraid the crowds are going to rise up and revolt. And so they had no answer for him. And then Jesus says, neither will I tell you. Where, I, where this authority, uh, where I get authority to do what I do. Then we've got the parable of the two sons, and Jesus tells that parable. There were two sons. He, a father asks them to go out and work in the field. The first son says no, but later on decides he's going to go. That would symbolize the Gentiles. The other son says, I'll go, and ends up not going. That would symbolize the unrepentant Jews. And then Jesus asked them the question, which son fulfilled the will of the Father? And they said, the first one. And then Jesus responds by saying, the, chief, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into heaven ahead of you. Okay? So uh, you can tell the reaction probably they got from that. And then finally, there's the one that was our gospel lesson for today, where you've got the landowner, God, and he's the vineyard owner. He lets out the land to the to tenants, and the landowner sends his uh, his uh, servants to get the the fruit of the harvest. 
And remember, those wicked tenants, they beat and stone and kill the uh, servants. He does this twice. The, the landowner sends them twice. Then, shockingly, the landowner says, I'll send who? My son. Surely they will respect my son. And what do they do to him? They kill him. Now, remember, who's telling this parable? Jesus. Jesus. He knows exactly what is coming, right? And, uh, and then it, it's almost comical because in the gospel lesson for today, you'll, you'll see if you haven't uh, worshipped yet, he ends up asking them, uh, you know, what do you think the landowner is going to do uh, with these uh, servants who treated them so, uh, uh, so bad, badly? And in verse 41 of Matthew 21, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. Well, who have they just condemned? Themselves. They just condemned themselves. And who are the other tenants that are going to be, the vineyard's going to go to, and they're going to produce the fruits? Among them will be the Gentiles. All believers, but among them will be the Gentiles. And um, then finally, he says in verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So inside of two parables, Jesus has told them that the tax collectors and prostitutes are going to go into the kingdom, and they're not. And here, that it's going to be taken away from them and given to those who are going to produce the fruits. So things are, uh, are, things are anything but harmonious now. And you can see, and, and at the end of, verse, uh, end of chapter 21, the chief priests uh, perceived he was speaking about them, and they were seeking to arrest him from that point, but they feared the crowds. Now comes this parable. This is the third parable in a row now, and it's going to have a similar message to the one uh, that we just talked about, the one that's in the gospel lesson for today. So let's read through the entire parable here, Matthew 22, starting with verse 1, and then we'll go back and kind of take it apart. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast." But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy." Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness, 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Then we have to say at the end of the reading, this is the gospel of our Lord. <laughs> it ends, ends on a pretty ominous note, doesn't it? Now let's go back and take this apart. First of all, who is the, uh, the main character here in, in the, the, uh, the, the king who gives a wedding feast? Who is the king? God, God the Father. Who is the son for whom he's giving this feast? Jesus, the son of God. The wedding feast itself is the great eternal banquet that's taking place. By the way, we, uh, we shouldn't um, totally think of this as something that hasn't begun yet, hasn't? I mean, we can think in a sense of we're sort of in a pre-banquet situation right now, aren't we, here on this earth? We have a foretaste of the great feast to come, so we shouldn't act as though this is something we aren't even experiencing quite yet. In a sense, we are. And uh, so let's go through this then. He, he, uh, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, or the reign of, of God, the reign of heaven, uh, has become like or may be compared to, the, again, God giving a wedding feast for his son. Now, who are the servants that God sent to call those who were invited? Who would those have been in Bible times? Yeah, the prophets, uh, primarily. The prophets in the Old Testament, spokespeople for God who came and uh, tried to say to the people, all is ready. Now, it's kind of interesting. I was doing a little reading on this. <clears throat> in the Middle East, we, in the, especially in Bible times, this is unfamiliar to us. But the practice was you invited somebody several times. Uh, did, they, did they have uh, electronics where you would, uh, you know, issue an evite to somebody uh, or, or send through the mail a fancy uh, card inviting them? No. Uh, you, you personally to them on a number of occasions, and apparently uh, there were people who said back at that time that they expected to be invited at least three times to something. Uh, because it, it, was a, it was a sign of honor when you invited someone multiple times. Now, this is, again, this is foreign to our way of thinking. Just think if you had to invite everybody three times, at least, to something you're doing. It's hard enough. You know, today, people just don't respond, do they, to invitations. But at that time, you were invited multiple times. So as they saw you on the street, they would say, remember... The wedding feast is coming. And then finally, when the day was here, the spokespeople went out and said, come, all is ready. Come to the feast, okay? So this is a way of looking at historically what has happened. Those who have been called have been invited throughout God's entire Old Testament time saying that, remember, the feast is coming. Come to the feast. And finally, uh, what happens to the people who are invited? In uh, uh, verse 3, he sent his servants to call those who were invited. See, they've already been invited to the wedding feast, but what happened? They would not come. And he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. What sense do you get about this 
king, or this, yeah, this king in a sense, he, what, did he give up after the first time they didn't come? He's patient. He long-suffering. He stays at it. He so wants them to come to this banquet. He won't take no for an answer. And think of it, how insulting it was when he had been inviting them, and they finally get the call that all is ready, and they say they pay no attention to it whatsoever. How insulting for the king, right? And just as like when we read in the book of Isaiah, does this sound like a cheap uh, kind of fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants banquet? No. Notice there again, he says, My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Again, this is going to be a great banquet. And notice what they do. They pay no attention. Uh, they just simply go off, one to his farm, another to his business. And notice there, the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Now, when in the world did that happen? When did, when did God's servants get treated shamefully and killed? The prophets, absolutely, were. Uh, just think of the, uh, as Jesus called him, uh, the great, greatest prophet, John the Baptist, is beheaded. Uh, you've got in the Old Testament God's prophets being treated shamefully and killed. Uh, and so this is, uh, again, they, they kind of probably sensing what he's talking about here as he goes into the details. Then, finally, finally, this patient, long-suffering king has had enough. And what does he do? In verse 7, he sends in his troops and murders, uh, destroys those murderers and burns their city. There's actually, an, probably, we think, an historical fulfillment of this already. Anybody think of what that might be? Well, not Sodom and Gomorrah. 70 A.D. and the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, uh, the uh, General Titus and so on. Um, uh, many think this is, a, this is pointing ahead to finally this long-suffering king having had enough and sending in uh, his troops. Isn't it interesting? His troops, uh, God, just as he used Assyria and Babylon in the Old Testament to bring about judgment, even uses the Romans in this case to bring about judgment. And notice then, verse 8, he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Now, this is important. Why were they not worthy to come in? What did they do with the invitation that he gave them and all the calls? They rejected it. That's what makes them unworthy. It's their own rejection of the offer and the invitation of the king. What makes people unworthy today? Very same thing. The rejection of the gracious offer by the long-suffering king, who says to them, all is ready, come into the banquet. It is not the fault of the king, who uh, did everything he possibly could to get them into the banquet hall. Okay. Now he's going to expand what's going on. And notice there he tells his servants now, go, he doesn't tell them to go into the back alleys. Go into the main roads and invite to the wedding feast how many? 
as many as you can find. Now, what is that, what is that saying? That everyone, not just the chief priests, scribes, elders, and Jews, everybody, whoever you can find, invite in to this banquet, okay? And notice they do that. As many as they can find, those servants went into the roads, gathered, notice they're all whom they found, including Gentiles, of course, both bad and good. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter uh, if your, your reputation is a good one or a bad one. You can still come into this banquet, right? Because it's God who does away with the badness. Scott? Yes, yes, in Luke's account, which is a parallel account to this, talks about not, not only all, but even expands it to include the blind, the lame, and so on. The people who, the, 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 uh, the religious aristocracy of the day would have been looking down their nose at as being unworthy to come into this banquet. Uh, because, again, if you had something, uh, some malady in your life, it must have meant that something was wrong between you and God. And they are the very people that are being brought in. Just like Jesus said in the other parable, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into heaven before you, and the kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to those who produce the fruit of it. And what's the fruit of it? Exactly what God produces in us, faith and trust. It's he who does it. So we uh, are worthy only because of the fact that he has invited us, and we, by his grace, are in that banquet hall. Remember the collect? Deal with us not according to your judgment, but according to your mercy, right? And so, uh, now, we could, in a sense, the, the wedding hall here, notice, is filled with guests. And we could, in a sense, think about the, the Christian church today. Uh, we are out, what is, our, what is our mission to do? As Jesus gave us, go and make disciples of all nations, right? Not just a select few, all nations. In other words, inviting whoever you find, going out to the highways and the byways. No restrictions, the good and the bad. Everybody is welcome. Come to the banquet. It is ready. Okay? Now, we kind of wish it ended right here. This would, this would be a great place to end because it's all happy and good. But it doesn't end here. Verse 11, the king himself comes now, and he looks at the guests, and he sees a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Now, there's some, historically, there's some difference of opinion. You'll read uh, some authors who will say that the, the whoever wealthy person who threw a big feast like this would actually supply the wedding garment for the guests to come in and to, to be adorned with. It'd be like if, if we had a wedding today, uh, the, uh, the person throwing the wedding gives you a tux, guys gives you a tux to wear, or ladies gives you a beautiful dress to wear. And uh, it's just a part of the celebration. That historically, not so sure that that's actually the case. Others, other authors, other historians say, no, it was just expected that when you went to a wedding feast, 
you dressed up a little more. You didn't go and, you, you know, the, the clothes you'd wear out in the field, okay? But whichever way we go, this guy is not appropriately adorned. Miles? Yes. Well, that's if he, if he was, it's either that if he was offered the garment, he refused it, or he refused to dress in an appropriate way, right? The point is, he's here in inappropriate re, uh, attire, inappropriate attire. And when we stop and think about now, what is, our, what could we compare to this wedding garment that we are clothed in? The righteousness of Christ, right? And again, it's only given to those who receive the invitation to the banquet and trust and believe in Jesus Christ. And we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Anybody else in any other garment doing it any other way is not going to be welcomed there, okay? And to make that clear, notice what happens here. Uh, and notice the guy was speechless. He had no, uh, no answer for how he is there without this garment. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place, where is that place that we're talking about here? Hell itself, yeah. And again, I, I make the point that, you know, we do these, we do these uh, surveys and polls in this country, and it seems an increasing number of people uh, don't believe, well, they don't believe in a, in a literal devil. They don't believe in a literal place called hell. And Scripture here, in that place, you know, it, it takes it for granted. It, it, it is a place. It's not fictional. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, again, notice here, there is no, you're either in the wedding banquet, in appropriate attire, or you're not. There's no sort of vestibule where you can hang out in between. You're either in the banquet hall or you're thrown out. And so, again, his message to those who are around him is that, again, there's only one way in. There's no other way in. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ, faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of all of our sin. Are there people today, like there were people in that day, that are trying to get in with another garment on them? When you think about it, what are some of the garments that other people are trying to get into the banquet wearing today? Their own good works, yeah. The garment of my own good works. Now, interesting you should say that. What does Isaiah call our own, our own righteousness? Filthy rags, that's exactly right. That's a great, that's a great line. Uh, our own attempts at righteousness, uh, God, through the prophet Isaiah, calls filthy rags. And again, the nice thing is uh, we are there and appropriately attired through Jesus Christ. So there's a both and here, and Jesus has given every warning possible to, to his opponents that you're either in or you're out. It's going to be taken from you and given to others. Others are going to go in before you. He is trying everything possible to tell them this is the way it is, okay? All right, so for next week, uh, 
we'll be talking wedding banquet. We know that for sure, right? That's the main imagery that we'll be talking about, both from Isaiah and from our gospel reading. And that banquet, of course, again, being the eternal celebration of God and his people, right? Before we move on to the epistle, any comments or questions? All right, I guess Jan, I think, was first. Go ahead. Okay, the question was uh, the idea of the servants that are mentioned uh, certainly included the prophets that were killed, as we talked about. But our, the question was, are we a part of the servants today? And certainly we are. Uh, as the church, as I mentioned, uh, go and make disciples of all nations. And we see, unfortunately, that there are places in the world today where you definitely can be killed, not even for not even for attempting to spread the Christian message, but even confessing Christ, uh, you can be killed. Now, I think in the immediate context here, Jesus was talking, again, knowing his audience there, uh, they would have been thinking about how the prophets had been stoned and killed uh, by their forefathers. And John the Baptist, not, you know, just very recently. Okay? Was, uh, oh, yeah, done. Yeah, verse 7 uh, the question was, is verse 7, could it also apply to the end of time? And yeah, I, I think there's, a, there's sort of a, a then and yet to come with this, that verse 7, certainly with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, is sort of a precursor to the final judgment that's going to come upon all who reject that invitation to the banquet. Okay? Yes, Fred? Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, uh, the comment was that ultimately you think of Christ as being killed by, you know, the, the uh, son, if we go back to the other parable that was before it, the son himself who comes gets killed as well. It's not just the servants who get killed. And then you've got the, on the cross, as Fred was saying, you've got, when you think about it, again, the only two reactions there can be. There's either faith, and you're in the banquet, that thief on the cross, and, you know, uh, who repents, today you'll be with me in paradise. You know, he, he could have said, today you'll be with me in the banquet. And rejection, uh, and weeping and gnashing of teeth, rejecting the, rejecting the offer. Okay? All right, any other comments or questions? Yes. Yes. How so? Oh, okay. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes, right. The point, uh, the question was about the, uh, the garment itself. And uh, on the surface, when you read that, it may be a bit troubling that, you know, why didn't he have it on as if it might be the fault of the, the 
person who's throwing the, the party didn't make sure he had one. But actually, again, as we said, whether, whether historically they always provided a garment or it was just that you were expected to come in a, more, in a, more, a better attire, whatever the case was, this guy rejected that and, and uh, rejected the, the will of the person throwing the banquet. Okay? So again, symbolizing the rejection of the gracious offer of the, the person uh, throwing the banquet, the king in this case. All right? All right, let's move on. We've got just a few minutes left, and we've got a terrific epistle lesson. Uh, this epistle lesson could stand on its own, <laughs> even if it's too bad. Uh, uh, we, we, don't, we, we also see this epistle lesson in Advent. On the third Sunday in Advent, where we light what color candle? The pink candle, which symbolizes hope. And that Sunday in the church year we call Gaudete Sunday, which is the Latin word rejoice. And notice what our epistle lesson for today starts with. That's why it's the epistle lesson for that Sunday many times. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, let's just, we won't read through the whole thing here for time purposes. Uh, is, is Paul here saying that we should just sort of, you know, don't worry, be happy, just, just be happy? No, it's, it's not a, a sort of a, you might call a superficial uh, rejoicing without any content. We're not rejoicing in ourselves. What are we rejoicing in? Rejoicing, notice, in in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. It's that we rejoice in him in terms of all that he is, all that he has given us, and all that he has promised us. And let's remember, where is Paul when he's writing this epistle? In prison. Not the first thing you think of, right? If you're in, in jail, rejoicing. Rejoice, he says, in the Lord, not just, uh, not just sometimes, but always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your, it's translated reasonableness here. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Um, the word also can mean a gentle spirit or gentleness. It's sort of the opposite of being arrogant and, and uh, uh, crude and, and overbearing. Uh, let your, your gentle spirit or your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, that may be an intentional double meaning here. The Lord is at hand in the one sense that he's always present with us, but what's another sense Paul may be after here when he says the Lord is at hand? Second coming. Yeah, the Lord is at hand. Okay, So we don't know which. It might be a little of both. All right, going on. And here's the part that um, uh, we'll say a few words about. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 6, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. Now, when we first hear that, and we might be laying in a hospital bed, 
Might I just lost our job? Might uh, have some, you know, just received a diagnosis or something pretty bad? What's our first reaction when we read something like that? Do not be anxious about anything. Yeah, we might, we might say to ourselves, well, that's easy for you to say, Paul, right? You didn't just have happen or get the news that I just got. Well, let's stop and wait, uh, wait a minute. Did Paul have any things in his life that cause, would cause people to be anxious? Yeah. There's a big catalog of things, you know, beaten, shipwrecked, arrested, left for dead once, right? And so it's not as though Paul is writing here without personal experience. He's not just theoretical about this. He was in these same situations and, in fact, is in jail right now. So do not be anxious about anything, okay? Now, being anxious about something, does that change anything? No. I can worry as much as I want about something, and it's probably still going to be pretty much the same. In fact, the only thing it'll do is make my health worse, probably, right? But then he says, you know, do something that will change things. Um, but in everything, by prayer, and that word for prayer is the more general, and supplication is the more you know, specific asking, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Why do you think Paul says, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God? I just, you know, let's say I just found out I, I have a, a diagnosis of a bad kidney or something. Why, why do you think Paul says, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God? Fred? Okay, all right. Okay, Fred was saying, if time comes for him to call you to heaven, don't worry about all those things. Just be thankful for everything you've got, right? Okay. Now, if I pray first, if I start with thanksgiving, and I thank God for a whole bunch of things, especially uh, his son, Jesus Christ, and everything he's done for me through Christ, what does that cause me to do now when I'm thinking about my bad kidneys? Remember that I am praying to what? The same God who has blessed me with all of these things and shown his love for me in all these things. And what does that cause me to do? Not to worry, right? Not, not to worry maybe as much at all, because that same God is the God I am praying to right now. The same God who has blessed me in such abundance. There's perhaps another reason that Paul says, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And that is that he is sure and certain that God is going to answer prayer in the way that is best for him. He's already thanking God for the answering of that prayer, even before he lists, lists the petitions. Could be one or the other, could be both, right? And so, with thanksgiving... Let your requests be made known to God. And notice there in verse 7, the peace of God. Now, uh, just for a second, does this peace of God mean that my problem, whatever I'm praying about, is automatically just going to vaporize and it'll be gone? No. 
That's the sense of Christian peace. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to have any more cares or concerns, but that even in the midst of those cares and concerns in life, I have a sense of calm, I have a sense of well-being that comes not from me, but from the God to whom I am praying, and the God, again, who has blessed me in such abundance. And Paul says that peace passes all understanding, and it guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. That word for guard means exactly what it sounds like. It's like a, standing, a sentinel standing at the door of your heart. And Philippi was a military city, so we think that's probably a pretty intentional choice of words by Paul there. That just as you would have a guard outside something that was very valuable, a military guard, so also the peace of God stands at the door of our heart and guards it. Against what? Against anxiety and worry and all those things that make no difference. Okay? All right, so this, this is one of my favorite uh, verses, this section right here in Scripture. And uh, should you ever receive a hospital call from me, uh, if you're in the hospital for any length of time, one of those visits, I'm probably going to be talking about this with you and, uh, and reviewing this with you. I think it's one of the best um, sections we have when it comes to the anxieties of life, prayer, and the, the wonderful God that we have, and the peace that only he can give. All right. For time purposes, I think we're going to end uh, here rather than launch into a whole other section. So next week we will be back and once again looking at the lessons for the following Sunday. And we thank you very much for being here today. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.